Thank you for watching NTD Business. Coming up, Pfizer stock losing $43 billion in value this month. Now expecting a big drop in sales this year for its COVID-19 products. Oil giant Exxon breaking the profit record for the Western oil industry. How did it make so much money? The Federal Reserve said to raise interest rates again this week. We talked to a 40-year investment veteran for tips on how to navigate the financial markets this year. And Boeing has just delivered its last 747 airplane. After five decades of production, the once revolutionary aircraft will no longer be made. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Top of the show, some big earnings reports today. First, on Pfizer. The pharma giant this month lost $43 billion of value, its biggest monthly drop since 2009. Its stock is down 14% this month. Investors expecting a tough path ahead for its COVID products. Pfizer is predicting a bigger-than-expected sales drop this year for its COVID-19 vaccine and its Paxlovid treatment. Paxlovid is the COVID-19 pill. Pfizer is shifting from supplying government contracts to the commercial market in the U.S. The company expects vaccine sales to tumble 64% this year. It predicts Paxlovid to drop 58%. Combined, they fall about $3 billion short of what Wall Street expects from both products. In 2022, Pfizer's COVID vaccine brought in nearly $38 billion in worldwide sales. Pfizer's total revenue reached $100 billion, and the company's annual profit grew 43% to over $31 billion. Meanwhile, ExxonMobil is taking in a historic profit high for the Western oil industry. The company posted a $56 billion net profit for 2022 today. That translates to about $6.3 million per hour. Exxon's chief financial officer explained the jump. She said it came from a combination of strong markets, strong production, and really good cost control. Exxon's results far exceeded its previous record from 2008. But at that time, oil hit 142 per barrel, 30% above last year's average price. The success has renewed criticism of the oil industry and sparked calls for more countries to levy windfall profit taxes on oil giants. This would impose higher tax rates on the companies as they take in surging profits. On Wall Street, stock indexes closed much higher today. The Dow rose 369 points or 1.1 percent. S&P gained 59 points, 1.5 percent. Nasdaq added 191 points, 1.7 percent. A new data released today shows pay for American workers grew at a slower pace in the fourth quarter of 2022. This marks a third straight slowdown. According to the Employment Cost Index, wages and benefits grew 1% in the last quarter, slower than the previous quarter. The slowing wage growth is bad news for workers, but a welcome news for the Fed. The Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said that he sees rapid wage gains as the biggest impediment to bringing inflation down. And get ready for borrowing costs to tick even higher this year. The Federal Reserve is meeting this week for the first time this year, and economists say the Fed will likely raise interest rates again. Here's the story on what this means for your finances and how soon we could see some relief. 
Good afternoon. The first Fed meeting of 2023 gets underway this week, and economists expect the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates again Wednesday, marking the eighth increase in a row. Economists predict a smaller increase than in the past, likely a quarter point. And then a 25 basis point hike in March, bringing the policy range to between 5 and 5.25 percent. Economist Joe Brusuelas expects hikes to continue at least through March. This week's meeting is a critical one. Economists say it should give us some insight into the Fed's policy plans for the rest of the year, as the Fed aims to slow down the overheated economy and ultimately bring down historic inflation. If you're out there and you're living paycheck to paycheck, the best I can offer you here is that the worst is behind this. But economists say before we see prices moderate, the Fed's move will likely deepen the economic pain for millions of American businesses and households by pushing the cost of borrowing even higher for credit cards, car loans, and mortgages. Economist Mark Zandi says the hardest hit sector could be the housing market. Most people, when they need to buy a home, they got to go get a mortgage, and that uh, is tied right into uh, to, to interest rates. And then there's also concerns the Fed's repeated hikes could trigger a recession. But Goldman Sachs says that's unlikely. We don't expect a recession. Our baseline view is that we're going through a period of below trend growth. The Fed is scheduled to hold a news conference on Wednesday following their two-day meeting. Joining me is Ted Oakley, managing partner and founder of Oxbow Advisors. He has more than 40 years of experience in advising the investment industry. So now, Ted, we're expecting a number of big uh, earnings reports, and we're expecting the Fed to raise rates by 25 basis points. To start off, what's your gut feeling about uh, these earnings reports? Well, I think generally, Don, they're, they'll be weaker. You know, now they're for the fourth quarter, and the ones that we think will be worse will be the first quarter, which they're into now. I, I'm not certain they're going to give that sort of guidance right now, but uh, they have to see that business is slowing down generally for most people, uh, even though those earnings, they may be okay for a lot of those companies, but as you go into the, you know, yet the first quarter earnings, which we're three months away, obviously, that's where you will have, uh, I think you'll have more problems, but we're looking for decreased earnings this year. We're lower than most people. You know, we're probably 10 to 15% lower than street estimates on the S&P 500. And where are you coming from with that? Well, look at the, if you look at the inputs they have, you know, first of all, business is slower in most industries. Just you look at the tech, tech starts it, but it's happening to a lot of other business, you know, housing, which is a big piece of the economy. You know, you look at housing at, you know, more than 20% for sure, maybe 25% of the economy when you ferret it all out. And then you've got auto, auto slowing down. There's a lot of things slowing down. Manufacturing, uh, you know, if you look at PMI, services, manufacturing, all of that's down. All of that has to be factored in. And when it is, that should factor into lower numbers. So with uh, the Fed uh, interest rates going to around 5% uh, predicted, you know, what sectors uh, are you bullish on, or, or is there a particular sector? Well, you know, Don, it's a mix for us right now. I mean, we obviously own, you know, but I will let you know we have three strategies, and there's a one that's almost bulletproof on one end, and it has nothing but really short-term uh, bonds and treasuries, that sort of thing in it. Uh, on the other end is nothing but stocks. And then the stocks, we're about 50% cash. I actually treasuries, but 
you know, we own things like MasterCard, Visa, O'Reilly Automotive, American Tower, things that can get through a recession, okay, uh, and they do good business all the time. So we like that, like the healthcare, we have United Healthcare, but in the middle, where you have a high income portfolio, there's some real good spots in there for doing things right now. You know, you look at um, what we own about, you know, we probably have 10 to 12 really good uh, preferred stocks on uh, that we own that basically, uh, you know, they're, they're qualified dividends, meaning they're taxed at the 20% rate, not the high rate. So if you net those down, uh, you know, at a six or six and a quarter percent yield, that gives you a much higher yield than even buying a tax-free bond. So we like that area. You know, we like the gold, the miners in here. You know, they've settled back some today, but we own, you know, we own some gold and miners. So if you look at those, see, there's some, there's some potential out there. And then we own a lot of the U.S. floating rate, U.S. Treasury, uh, which doesn't go up or down in price because it readjusts every Monday to the 90-day rate. So uh, it's perfect for this kind of sort of time frame we're in right now. So there's things to own. Uh, it's just not one of those things where you just buy everything double-fisted. You have to wait a while. I see. I'm just trying to get an overall picture of uh, you know this year, uh, and I wanted I want your comments on, on the tech sector. We're, we're seeing massive layoffs uh, in this sector. They're cutting costs. What would your advice be to investors in in this sector, or maybe what uh, your opinion on this sector? Well, if you go back, uh, Don, and look at every bull market, okay, whatever set of stocks were happening in that bull market didn't normally happen in the next bull market. Maybe with one exception in 2000 was Microsoft, but they retooled themselves. So my guess is that all these FANG stocks that everybody owned and owns, by the way, will not be the terrific leaders of the next bull market. I'm not saying they won't do okay. But it reminds me of Cisco in 2000, number one stock out there. Everybody had to own it, CSCO. And, uh, you know, it went from uh, 82 to 6 and never has come back yet. It, see, it's that sort of thing you have to be careful of. You can't buy yesterday's stocks. Uh, you have to, and I think technology will be the, the right thing, but it may not be those five stocks. You know, it may be something else. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time today, Ted Oakley founder of Oxbow Advisors. Great having you on. Okay, Don. Thanks a lot. And for the first time since becoming Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy will meet with President Joe Biden tomorrow. Among the issues to be dis discussed is the U.S. debt ceiling. The U.S. hit its $31.4 trillion debt limit earlier this month. Biden has so far insisted that there should be no negotiations, saying the most responsible approach is for Congress to simply raise the limit. But two dozen Senate Republicans said in a letter to President Biden that they won't back a debt ceiling increase without at least equal spending reductions imposed. They point to a few areas they see as wasteful, like more funding for the IRS, efforts to police speech, and money funneling into programs meant for pandemic recovery. Meanwhile, Speaker McCarthy said cuts to Medicare and Social Security are off the table, but he indicated that other federal agencies and programs could be under the microscope, including defense spending like military aid to Ukraine. June is when the Treasury is expected to have exhausted its ability to use tools to stay under the debt limit. By that time, lawmakers must reach a consensus, most likely to raise the debt limit to avoid a default.
And a new rule proposed by the Department of Education could cost up to $360 billion over the next decade. It's according to an estimate by the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. The rule would overhaul one of the department's student loan repayment plans. It would cut borrowers' payments to a specific percentage of their income. The plan would slash monthly costs for undergraduate borrowers by as much as 50%. The average four-year graduate could see savings of as much as $2,000 per year. The Department of Education estimates the plan to cost nearly $140 billion, but the Penn model projects it could be as high as $360 billion. The House Oversight Committee will hear from former Twitter employees next week. They are expected to testify about the company's handling of reporting on Hunter Biden. Here's the chairman of the Oversight Committee, Representative James Comer, from yesterday. We're going to talk to Twitter employees because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the laptop. And we're going to talk about that laptop. We're going to start with the, with the hard drive because there's a lot of evidence on the hard drive that would suggest that Joe Biden knew very well what his family was involved in. Uh, even though he said he never met with any of these people, there's pictures of Joe Biden with these people. There's logs from Joe Biden uh, meeting with these people. There's emails uh, from some of these people uh, texting and emailing Hunter Biden saying, thanks for setting up the meeting with your dad. I mean, this is why we're investigating. This family has taken in millions and millions of dollars from our adversaries, mainly in China. And I think we need to determine what, you know, what was that money for? Who, who supplied that money? The hearing is scheduled for February 8th. The former Twitter executives are expected to be Vijaya Gaddy, James Baker, and Yule Roth. It will be the first they've appeared before Congress to discuss Twitter's decision to block news on Hunter Biden's laptop in the weeks leading up to the 2020 election. Comer said yesterday that the committee wants to make sure national security is not compromised. Republicans have said the Hunter Biden laptop story was suppressed for political reasons, while the White House, on the other hand, calls Republican investigations into Hunter Biden divorced from reality political stunts. And the Environmental Protection Agency today effectively vetoed a proposed copper and gold mine in a remote region of southwest Alaska. Native tribes and environmentalists have long pushed for protections in the region. The EPA said the proposed site would threaten the world's largest sockeye salmon fishery. But the developer has argued that the mine could coexist with the salmon. The firm called the EPA's action unlawful and political. Alaska's Republican governor said the EPA's veto constituted a dangerous precedent for development in the state. The last Boeing 747 airplane is being delivered today. Boeing made the delivery at its Washington state factory to cargo airline Atlas Air. The Boeing 747 revolutionized air travel all across the world. Boeing introduced it in 1970, a time when air travel was becoming more and more popular. The number of flyers had quadrupled in the preceding years because flights were becoming more affordable and faster. And the 747 helped make air travel even more affordable through its capacity, range, and efficiency. Former pilot and university professor Dan Bubb says the airline was so outstanding, people at the time called it the queen of the skies. It truly was the pinnacle of all aircraft that Boeing had built. Nothing really compared to the 747. Unique in design, having kind of the bubble top, 
you know, where the, where the cockpit is and some business class seats as well, first class. It, it also heralded a new era of luxury travel where some 747s had piano bars, they had cocktail bars, they had other things in them. Over the past five decades, the 747 has transported over 3.5 billion air passengers. Boeing has built over 1,500 individual planes for over 100 customers. Airlines all over the world have flown from it, from Germans' Lufthansa to Air China, from British Airways to Nigeria's Max Air. Many of these airlines are still using their 747s, with Lufthansa actively using it the most. It has 27 in its fleet. But many believe passenger airlines will eventually stop using them altogether. This is because the 747 no longer obtains what all airlines want, the lowest possible cost per passenger. Aerospace expert David Naledi says Boeing designed the 747 to reduce the cost per passenger by putting more people on each plane, but because of improvements in technology, that is no longer the best strategy. Aircraft design has changed, particularly in the last 10 to 12 years with the newest batch of single-aisle aircraft, where we've gotten so efficient, turbine engines have gotten so efficient, that you can carry fewer passengers in a smaller aircraft for less cost than operating a very large 747 with 400 passengers on it. Noletti says these smaller, more advanced aircraft are cheaper to both maintain and operate. Therefore, the 747 is less financially viable than it used to be. Noletti himself was involved in the manufacturing of many 747 planes. He's worked at companies that manufactured airframe and engine components like fan blades and wing stringers. It's always kind of cool to get on a plane and say, I made something, literally ran a company or worked in a plant that made parts that are on the aircraft I'm sitting in right now. They were all unique and different experiences, but but very fulfilling um, and uh just, just a unique experience to have, have worked um, on detail parts for, for such an incredible aircraft. There are an estimated 44 Boeing 747 passenger planes still flying, according to analytics firm Sirium. That era is coming to an end. But there's still 314 747s being used as cargo planes. Freighters use them on long, high-volume routes, and the government also uses many 747s, with the most famous being Air Force One. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, why is scrolling so addictive? We take a look into how our brains are affected when we scroll through social media apps. And is your child ready for social media? We have tips from a pediatric psychologist on how to know whether it's the right time or not. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. We took a look into why scrolling through apps and social media can be so addictive. It's become unavoidable for many in the modern world. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. Infinite scrolling is everywhere, and it can be addictively entertaining. For some of us, infinite scrolling is unavoidable. But what's happening on a deeper level that makes scrolling so addictive? 
asked Courtney Conley, an adolescent therapist and author who holds a doctorate in counselor education. Yeah, and so it is kind of a catch-22 because, you know, if you're in any kind of an entrepreneurial space, um, or like you had mentioned for, you know, in, in different workspaces and things like that, you almost have to stay informed and connected, and we're encouraged to have this online presence. Scrolling exploits a mental shortcut that many people naturally use, called the unit bias. It's similar to wanting to finish a plate of food regardless of the size, rather than going by how hungry or full we are. We naturally want to keep scrolling because there's no end to it. Psychiatrist Dr. Carol Lieberman says there are two main reasons social media can pull you into addictive scrolling. The first is that they keep on looking for more likes, more hearts, more um, confirmation that they're cool. The second is that the fear of, move, of missing out, FOMO, fear of missing out. They want to know what all their friends, all the people on their social network are doing, wearing, going. Scrolling also takes advantage of something called hook models. They get you hooked by generating addictive feedback loops that keep users glued to their phones. The hook model has four phases, a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. On social media, a notification can trigger users to perform the action of opening it. They're rewarded with a like, so they invest in more scrolling to find additional notifications. According to Aaron Rupp, writing on the freedom.to website, infinite scrolling can also have negative effects for business uses. Problems with accessibility, cumbersome navigation, and it's not great for search engine optimization. But scrolling doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Many social media sites allow children to join when they officially become a teenager, but the U.S. Surgeon General believes 13 still too young for children to be on those platforms. In this next story, we have more on how to know when your child is ready for online social sites and how families can make a social media plan. In early teen years, the U.S. Surgeon General says kids are still developing their identity and social media can have a major impact. The skewed and often distorted environment of social media often does a disservice to many of those children. That's why Dr. Vivek Murthy says 13 is still too young for kids to be on social media, but keeping them off those sites may be easier said than done. It depends on your child. You know your child best. Pediatric psychologist Ariana Howett with Nationwide Children's Hospital says deciding whether a child is ready for social media starts with these questions. Do you have an open and trusting relationship with your child? Will they respect boundaries and expectations you set? Will they come to you if there's a problem or concern? Also consider their personality. Do they really care about what others think about them? Or are they comfortable in their identity? How, how are they with peer pressure? Because again, social media is kind of opening the world to all of that. If you answer those questions and feel they're ready, Howitt says to set up a family social media plan. And you talk about the safety, you talk about what you're posting, how to interact with others, who you're following and keep checking in with the child. And set limits. Consider taking devices away at bedtime so sleep isn't affected. Being ready doesn't mean I'm gonna give them access to this thing and walk away. You still want to think about how do I monitor, how do I continue to stay in a partnership with them on how they're using it. If your child is struggling with a mental health issue like ADHD, depression, anxiety, or is at risk for eating disorders, 
Hoet says those are extra considerations to think about when it comes to social media use. And that's all the stories today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at NTD.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. I'll see you tomorrow.